When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. 92% of households that start the year with Peloton are still active a year later. 92% because of a bike? Not just bikes. We also make treadmills and rowers. Oh, let me guess, for elite athletes only, right? Nope. It doesn't matter if you're an avid exerciser or new to working out. Peloton can help you achieve your fitness goals. 92% stick with it. So can you. Try Peloton bikes, tread or row, risk-free with a 30-day home trial. New members only. Not available in remote locations. See additional terms at onepeloton.com slash home dash trial. At the Home Depot, we're dedicated to helping you build the skills that get your home projects done right. That's why we offer free and interactive online DIY workshops. During the live streams, our knowledgeable associates help you tackle your DIY projects no matter your age or skill level. You can learn how to install new single pole switches as well as standard duplex and GFCI outlets. Register for free at homedepot.com workshops. The Home Depot, how doers get more done. At first, the viewer sees nothing but a blank screen, and only hearing the voice of Rick Danko, Martin Scorsese, and another member of the film crew as they run through a first take. Okay, yeah, I'll start again. Okay, same, same, same slate, still running. running. Cutthroat. Danko manages only to utter the word cutthroat before the filmmaker interrupts him with a question to the crew about the audio recording. After this false start, the visual images appear as a close-up of a rack of balls on a billiards table. The camera then pulls back to show Danko preparing to break. But before he does, there's a brief conversation with Scorsese. Okay, Rick, what's the game? Cutthroat. What's the object on it? object is to keep your balls on the table and knock everybody else's off. Importantly, the first scene of The Last Waltz does not simply capture an event. It constructs one, and Cutthroat provides its central metaphor. As writer Stephen Severn notes, The metaphor is extremely complex, and the scene demands careful consideration because within the subtle nuances of Cutthroat's structure lies the unique thematic principle of The Last Waltz. Taking a deeper look, the word itself carries a violent, bloody connotation, and Danko's analysis invokes a vision of the classic Western gunfight, where the last cowboy left standing walks away the winner. But Cutthroat is also obviously a game. It is not, however, a game of chance, but one of skill, audacity, and assurance. More than any other form of billiards, Cutthroat values calculation and skill over luck. 
Success at the game does not demand the risk be taken when appropriate, but be demonstrating careful control of the cue ball and foresightedness in planning for future shots. A skilled player can lessen the danger. Scorsese's camera clearly shows that Danko lacks these talents. He jabs the cue instead of stroking it. His shots are wild and random, and his face betrays the fact that he is surprised by the game's progression. The pool table becomes a site for chaos. The film then fades to crowd noises, and the players take the stage. Sweaty and tired, you start to understand that maybe the film isn't quite in chronological order. Danko removes his hat, Robertson steps up to the microphone, and muses with the crowd that they're still there, mere hours into the morning. The band then launches into one of their finest covers. Happy Thanksgiving! While the MGM soundstage might have been the last time the original lineup played billed as the band, the film and post-production process kept demanding more. Now Scorsese wanted to add a slew of interviews to the film. With more budget, after a promising showing of footage to film executives, it allowed them to add a series of interviews. These interviews took place at their clubhouse, Shangri-La, and most evenings started well after midnight. The goal was to reminisce about the good old days and play some instruments. Though the entire setup is rather forced, it became evident through various interviews littered between the concert footage that much was being left unsaid. It's no surprise at this point we know that the band minus Robertson was uneasy with the whole proposition of the film and the farewell concert. Now they were being forced to be interviewed and it to be framed in the narrative in which Robertson and Scorsese wanted to present. In exchange, we get a series of uneven interviews. Following the first performance, the frame settles into a droopy-eyed Robertson, slouched in a brown chair in front of a backdrop of the Canadian flag. With Scorsese across from him, a can of orange crush, and an ashtray on the table, Martin Scorsese is already trying to peel back from the traditional interview setup by showing from the get-go a moment where Robertson asks if he can retake the statement. Okay, look, we've been together 16 years. Who? Who? Yes. The band. Uh-huh. Um, do you want me to plug that in there? Yeah, let's do it again. The band has been together 16 years, together on the road. We did eight years in bars, dives, dance halls, eight years of concerts and stadiums, arenas. We gave our final concert, the band's final concert. We called it The Last Waltz. Well, why was the hell in San Francisco in um, uh, Winterland uh, when you guys have been on the road for 16 years, you know? Well, Winterland was the first place that the band played as the band. Some friends showed up and helped us take it home. Well, they weren't just friends. I mean, I, 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 I know they're more than that. Did you ask me that? Uh, ask me that again. I mean, they weren't just friends. I mean, uh, what, tell me, tell them they weren't just friends who came in to say hello. You know what I mean? Get that fly. 
<laughs> no, they were more than just friends. I feel they're probably uh, some of the greatest influences on music on a whole generation. We wanted it to be more than just a concert. We wanted it to be a celebration. Celebration of a beginning or an end? Beginning of the beginning of the end of the beginning. That's it. Now, the Robertson interview sets up the band's story and is the reason it is shown. The location being the Winterland and the guests that are present. Again, Robertson and Scorsese don't shy away from telling the audience that the interviews are piecemeal and takes a redone. In a moment of framing Robertson as cool, he attempts to grab a fly in thin air with a giggle before a hard cut to leave on Helm's iconic Good Evening and the band launching into Up on Cripple Creek. From Cripple Creek, the film transitions to a new setting. Replacing the Canadian flag, we have a blue Dixie beer sign, a juxtaposition not only in the film, but the overall symbolic nature of the band's music. Robbie, Richard, and Rick are scattered across couches, bleary-eyed, lighting cigarettes and drinking from styrofoam cups. It was kind of, uh, we didn't know where we were going, we didn't know what it was, it was... But for some reason it seemed like a good idea. We got to this place, joint, Fort Worth, Texas. Been burned out, bombed out. The roof wasn't even on the place anymore. And Secret that's when they decide to call it the Skyline Lounge. And we got there and set up in a big place. Huge bar way at the back and a big dance floor. Real old. All right, so we set up the first night and go down to the place to play. And and we go in there and there's about in this huge place about three people in the audience a mm -hmm. uh, one-armed go-go dancer and a couple of drunk waiters a couple over here and a couple over there somebody shoots <laughs> off a tear gas and a fight started <laughs> <laughs> there isn't enough people in the place to get angry and we found out a few years later that it was jack ruby's club again we continue the storytelling featuring mainly Robertson talking, the others, somewhat ignored, chime into Robbie's tale of the rough and rowdy Skyline Lounge in Dallas, Texas. After the story, the big reveal is that the club belongs to the infamous Jack Ruby. The significance of Robertson telling this tale further helps establish the rough and often dangerous lifestyle the band lived on the road, further cementing the need to stop touring in that road lifestyle. And that concludes with a profile shot of Robertson, fading as the band launches into the shape I'm in. Spotlight abruptly turning on the fancily dressed Richard Manuel, graveling into the microphone. The correlation is expertly matched with the theme of the song, though there is sadness there. Author Neil Minturn notes, The opening shot of Manuel is sad and disturbing, such a talented musician seeming so alone, even amongst his bandmates. And while that may be, he still delivers a rich vocal performance.
The next interview comes following Ronnie Hawkins' performance back in the same setting at the clubhouse with Robbie, Rick, and Richard. Now we are treated for the first time to anyone outside of Robertson in an interview setting. And it's Richard talking about stealing baloney in the early days of their career. He's helped along by Rick, who also discusses his exploits of turning over a cigarette machine. And the week went on, and uh, it was a little depressing. And it was especially depressing because we didn't have any money at all. <laughs> when, no At dough. one point, we had no more food money. It got to the point where, coming from Canada and everything, we had these overcoats, big overcoats with pockets and everything. And we had a little routine. Go to the shopping center all together. You know, well, I, stayed, I stayed at home, though. I, oh, no, you <laughs> I got I got the cigarettes. I turned the okay. cigarette machine upside down and got everybody some cigarettes. <laughs> if you remember, man? Yeah, I remember. But that was in the club. You got me some baloney. <laughs> we'd, we'd go to the supermarket, and uh, they'd uh, a couple of people would buy a couple of loaves of bread because that was what the cheapest thing you could get. You know, the rest of us would be carousing the aisles. Stuffing baloney. <laughs> it kept time to leave, and the guy with the two loaves of bread would go up to the checkout counter. We'd say, "We'll meet you out in the car there. You take, go ahead and take the bread out." <laughs> While funny and probably the most authentic we've seen from the interview segments by this point in the film, is rather interesting how the framing of each member already begins to differentiate Richard and Rick from Robertson. They come off rather poorly, and they aren't delivering the grand myth-making stories that everybody knows about the band today, rather their exploits of stealing baloney. Film then transitions into Rick's then-defining moment with It Makes No Difference. The performance is the polar opposite of the portrayal that we've seen thus far in the film. In the interviews, Danko is jovial and young-hearted, but his performance is mature, emotional, and steadfast. It makes no difference where I turn. I can't get over. Following a handful of performances, that includes Neil Young's poignant performance of his classic Helpless, the shot settles on the sixth formal interview of the film. Scorsese speaks with his head back to us, the viewer. He is interviewing Robertson, who comments about being on the road for 16 years. I don't know, maybe I don't know if the years connect or it's a coincidence or what it is, but it seems like that's it. That's that's what the last waltz is. I mean, 16 years on the road, I mean, you start, the numbers start to scare you. I mean, I couldn't uh, live with 20 years on the road. I don't think I could even discuss it. While there is no doubt that Robertson felt the way he did, it doesn't technically speak for the entire group as he somewhat suggests. In hindsight, the band outside of Robertson didn't want to stop. We've established this much. They enjoyed the road. Also, Helm joined the group, the Hawks, in 1957, thus spending even more years touring. And Manuel, Danko, and Hudson didn't join until 1961, whereas Robertson joined in 1960. Yes, this is all semantics, but it does further cement Robertson's narrative as his own rather than one of the greater group. Nonetheless, after the somber words of Robertson, the film segues into stage fright, bringing the narrative further along.
After more concert footage, we find Richard laying casually on the couch at Shangri-La, bathed in red light, as if he was present in the red light district, stroking his beard and his bloodshot eyes gaze over the smoke-filled room. This is juxtaposed with Robertson in the control room, and the two interviews are pieced together to further the narrative around the Hawks and how they settled on the name The Band. Well, we were the, we were the Hawks. And everything was fine. We were sailing along, and all of a sudden, one day, the Hawks meant something else altogether. And it was right in the middle of that whole psychedelia in a chocolate subway marshmallow overcoat those kind of names when we were working with Bob Dylan and we moved to Woodstock uh, everybody referred to us as the band he called us the band Uh, our friends called us the band our neighbors called us the band and we started out with the crackers we tried to call ourselves the honkies No, everybody kind of backed off from that. It was too straight. The story is interesting and comical. Richard brings joy to the interview segments, and often, you know, he's characterized as impish, but you see a little hint of trickster, and those tropes are on display here. We also know that Scorsese often waited until the early morning hours after a night of partying to interview Richard and others, a choice that is suspect if the intent is to get coherent narratives and make the interview section of the film purposeful and interesting. Though Richard does get the penultimate line. So, uh, we decided just to call ourselves the band. Later on, after our first studio performance featuring the Staple Singers, we again join Rick, Richard, and Robbie back in the clubhouse, this time with instruments. Rick has a fiddle, Richard a harmonica, and Robbie an acoustic guitar. They break out into a rough but enjoyable cover of old-time religion. As Neil Minturn notes, quote, the segment effectively communicates their strong connection to an older musical tradition. One gets the feeling that given a day or two to think about it, old-time religion could be a convincing arrangement easily recognized as band material. The tune dates back to a traditional gospel song from 1873. Though some scholars, such as Forrest Mason McCann, have asserted the possibility of an earlier stage of evolution of the song, 
in that the, quote, tune may go back to English folk origins, but remain popular by African Americans for several decades. The band's rendition is a co-lead vocal from Robertson and Danko, and Rick's unorthodox fiddle playing gives the moment something special, making it a standout moment of the interview portions of the film, while Scorsese expertly lets us into one of the rawest, most authentic moments. Scorsese expertly lets us in to one of the rawest, most authentic moments in the film, showing all of the good fun and skill these three players have. But it ends with the Robertson quote, Ugh, it's not like it used to be. Much to the contrary, we follow into Lee Von Helm's finest performance with the band in a live setting with the iconic rendition of The Night They Drove Old Dixie Down. In a complete thematic shift with the conclusion of Dixie, we zoom out of a shot of a New York City poster, revealing Robertson and Helm. This is the first segment we spend any significant time with Levon. He wears a blue-white baseball cap and a denim jacket. We pick up on a conversation between the pair of band members and Scorsese. Robertson muses about women and the adventurous nature of the city. Dream come true. Fascinating. Scary. Kind of hard to uh, take the first time. You have to go there about two or three times before you can fall in love with it. <laughs> but uh, that happens eventually. We stayed at the uh, Times Square Hotel on 42nd Street. Well, the title of the hotel and everything, it sounded like it was conveniently located in midtown right. Manhattan. Right. Yeah. You know, I mean, what did we know? You know, we came out of the hotel after checking anything oh it's great to be back in uh, new york movie theaters forever all these friendly women walking up and down the streets uh, was uh, it was great yeah new york, new york. Was, uh, was an adult portion you know that was an adult dose <laughs> so it uh, took a couple of trips you know to to get into it you just go in the first time and you get your ass kicked and you take off and as soon as it heals up, you come back and uh, you try it again. Eventually, you fall right in love with it. Roulette Records was located in uh, the middle of this mythical place, Tin Pan Alley, the songwriting capital of the world. And we met some of the greatest songwriters ever, rock and roll songwriters. Doc Palmas, uh, Mark Schumann, Lieber and Stoller. They were all there then, Carol King, Neil Diamond, at the time, you know, it wasn't a very fair thing. The songwriter was the low man on the totem pole. But then uh, these people, and here come the 60s, with change and revolution and war and assassinations and a whole other frame of mind uh, coming along. And these songwriters were expressing the feelings of people, people in the street. In a way, it was kind of... Uh, beginning of the end of Tin Pan Alley. It's also worth noting, at least at this point, Robertson and Helm, who had never held his disdain for interviews and later his relationship with Robertson, seemed perfectly cordial in this moment. 
Moreover, while this interview is clearly to set up New York City as a fundamental piece of the band's lore, it also provides historical context for a rich music history, making note of Tin Pan Alley, a place that Neil Diamond got his start. That segues the film into his performance of Dry Your Eyes from the Robertson-produced album Beautiful Noise. Dry your eyes and play it slowly Just like you're marching off to war From a rather lackadaisical performance of Neil Diamond, we fade into a new setting. The shot starts on Garth Hudson's face, panning back to reveal Robertson, Danko, and Manuel with Helm to the edge of the screen. Now a Confederate flag rather than a Canadian one drapes in the background. Again, a juxtaposition that is no doubt shared within the music of the group and their influences. Scorsese starts, rather honestly though, asking the group why they shed away from publicity when they started out. Hudson provides an answer. So when you guys first started playing as, as the band, uh, you kind of uh, shied away from publicity a lot. Talk about that a little. That was just part of a, a lifestyle that we got to love in Woodstock. You know, we got to like it. You know, just being uh, being able to chop wood or hit your thumb with a hammer. We'd be concerned with fixing the tape recorder and fixing the screen door, you know, and stuff like that, and getting the songs together. We always seem to get a whole lot more done when we didn't have a lot of company around, you know? Yeah. Just, uh, we were more productive. And as soon as company came, of course, you know, we'd start having fun. And, and you know what happens when you have too much fun. <laughs> From that, Rick Denko jumps in, rather impishly talking about when company came around, the focus of the group became more about sexual deviance rather than music. Eliciting a hard chuckle from the group. Scorsese continues to prod, and even Danko, who was willing to divulge, restrains himself from any more juicy details. But Manuel and Helm decide to jump in. Something you've kind of evaded around here, but uh, I don't know why, but uh, I'll ask it now. What about women in the road? I love them. That's probably why we've been on the road. That's it. Well, Not that I don't like the music. I thought you weren't supposed to talk about it too much. Well, I guess we're not. We're going to go on and plan away from that sort of stuff. (laughs) Get into something else. Also, since the beginning, yeah, since we started playing together, you know, just like we've all grown just a little bit. So have the women. You know, and it's amazing. I just want to break even. (laughs) Helm seemed to hide venom in his eyes, clearly uncomfortable about giving much detail to Scorsese and what seemed like a rather protectiveness around Richard Emanuel, who appears not to be in the best of states. The whole scene provides a glimpse into band dynamics, relationships, and priorities. Garth focused on the music and somewhat normal lifestyle, the groupie rock and roll mania that found some members crazed, and Richard's burnout from the grind of being a working musician, trying to get their keep. The part that should be highlighted most here, though, are Manuel's words, quote, I just want to break even. There is sadness in his eyes. The combination of his crooked smile provides a glimpse into his real reality. Manuel often hid behind comedy, but it only truly masked his despair. 
The film then finds us with Canadian peer Joni Mitchell, who shone on the stage, her translucent skin highlighted as she strums the introduction to Coyote, which had some loose connections to the themes just talked about by the band's interview. No regrets, Coyote. We just come from such different sets of circumstances. I'm up all night in the studios and you're up early on your range. You'll be brushing out a broodmare's tail while the sun is ascending. The band is then found in the kitchen, sitting atop counters and chairs, lazily chain-smoking away, and an orange crush soda never too far out of reach. Robertson, who leads the narration, talks about traveling to Levon's home of West Helena, Arkansas. In 1965, to find the mythical Sonny Boy Williamson, the bluesman who lived there. As Manuel notes, he was the best harmonica player he had ever heard. Levon's hometown is near West Helena. At one time, we were there for some reason or, or another, and uh, we decided we were going to look up one of the legends of that town, which was Sonny Boy Williamson. In my opinion, he's the best harp player. Much like uh, harmonica. Blues harmonica that I've ever heard. He's the big daddy of And he took us uh, to a friend of his place, a woman's place, who served food and corn liquor. He was a southern booze kid. And he would sit there and he was playing for us. And we were getting drunk and trying to figure out where we were. We were wiped out. And he was spitting in a can, and I thought he was dipping snuff. I thought maybe he had something in his lip. And he kept spitting in this can and playing, and we kept getting drunker. And finally, I looked over in the can, and I realized it was blood. He was getting pretty tired and pretty drunk by then. And we made big plans for the future and all kinds of things we were going to do, and it was tremendous. A great night. And a couple of months later, we got a letter from his people, uh, his manager, whoever it was, saying that he had passed away. Overall, this is one of the biggest storytelling pieces of the band's overall myth. Not that the story was fake, but it was probably exaggerated a bit in places, maybe to make the band in a similar vein of Robert Johnson, the rough, gritty, devil-dealing stories that surround his character. It also shows how steep the band is in blues. After all, it's possibly their biggest influence on their style as a group, but also individually. Another interesting note that might have some significance is the band's wardrobe. Neil Minturn suggests the absence of hats in this segment might symbolize their respect for Sonny Boy, a musician they all genuinely admired. Rather naturally, we find the band back at the last waltz with one of the greatest harp players of all time, Paul Butterfield on stage for a romping rendition of Mystery Train. From the blues performance, we find Helm and Robertson in an exterior setting. It's probably somewhere outside the studio of Shangri-La. It's evening, there is a pool game happening in the background as you hear the balls clicking away. Helm muses on his childhood and his version of roots music. Near Memphis, uh, cotton country, rice country. Uh, What's the most interesting thing is uh, probably the music. Levon, who, uh, who came from around there? Carl Perkins. Carl Perkins? Sure. 
Muddy Waters. King of country music. Yeah. Elvis Presley. Mm-hmm. Johnny Cash. Bo Diddley. That's kind of the middle of the country, you know. Right there, so bluegrass or uh, country music. You know, if it comes down to that area, yeah. and if it mixes there with rhythm, and if it dances, yeah. then you've got a combination of all those different kinds of uh, music. Country, bluegrass, uh, blues music. The melting pot. Show music. And what's it called, then? Rock and roll. Rock and roll, yes. <laughs> Helm is calm. He seems at ease more so than the other interviews. Effortlessly cool as Robertson, potentially aided by cocaine, is far more amplified, often trying to interject. This is a great display of the duality of the two and their respective personas. The transition is perfect, though, as Helm mentions one of his idols, Muddy Waters, leading to the powerful bluesman's performance of Manish Boy. Now, when I was a young boy, at the age of five, my mother said I'm gonna be the greatest man alive. And the blues continues with the white British variety, with their friend Eric Clapton taking the stage to perform the classic further on up the road before we settle on Martin Scorsese, white faced, staring into the camera in dark hallways of Shangri La. Assuring the camera is rolling, Scorsese and Rick Danko walk through Shangri-La, passing dozens of rooms in a rather bizarre sequence. What makes this scene interesting is Scorsese's first showing of the future. A focus has been on the past, but now Scorsese uses Danko to explore what is next as they settle behind the recording console. So Rick, what is a Shangri-La? Maybe give us a little tour. What is a Shangri-La? It's a clubhouse. This is where we... uh... Get together and play, make records. Yeah. Kind of better. It's like an office, I guess, but it's used to be a bordello. bordello? I think you can tell by the wallpaper, that decadence, that softness in the bar room. You know, I, I've heard oh, right. a few funny stories, man, but... Uh, That's why all these rooms here. can't believe Hi. most of what you hear, but... was a master control bedroom. This is now a master control music room. Well, let me ask you now, now that the, the last waltz is over, what are you, what are you doing now? Uh, Eddie, why don't you? Yeah. Just making music, you know? Oh, yeah. Trying to stay busy. unpack in this scene. Danko gets lost in his new song, Sip the Wine, and it appears that he is sad, 
or at least very introspective. What is he thinking about? Maybe how his life of nearly two decades is about to change? How the brotherhood that he shared with a band of other musicians was over? He was now a solo artist, a journey that certainly was more individualistic. Whatever he was thinking in that moment, in the flow of the music, he totally forgets that Scorsese is there and that the camera looms over him. And without much breathing room, the scene cuts to Robertson, a last waltz poster behind him and a hat that is similar, if not the same one he wore for portions of the performance. Clearly, this interview was shot rather late in post-production. It's where the music would take you. I mean, otherwise you would never go to such a situation. Because of the music, it took us through, it took us everywhere. It took us to some strange places. Physically and spiritually? Physically, spiritually, and psychotically. It just always wasn't on the stage. Even though you were on the stage? Even though we were on the stage. Overall, while the editing of the Danko to Robertson's scene may be suspect, his theme is connected with Robertson's and providing an interesting commentary on what the audience may have just witnessed while watching Rick Danko's segment. We are then swept into the MGM studio for a studio rendition of the band's new tune, Evangeline, with Emmylou Harris. Upon completion, the cameras pan out to reveal the studio setting and dozens of crew members emerge from the smoke and hazy lights. The audience is then transported back to the Last Waltz concert. Garth Hudson appears basked in shadow and light as he provides the audience his signature piece of music in The Gymnetic Method, right into Chest Fever. However, this is rather abruptly stopped as we hear Robertson's voice linger with the line, Garth could play better than anybody we ever heard, before Hudson provides a rather eloquent statement about music. musicians that we knew at the time. He could play better than anybody we ever heard. And Garth joined the band if we would uh, make him the music teacher. And we didn't know why or what that was all about, but we said, sure, you know, I mean, we're interested anyway. And we uh, 
had to pay him $10 a week each for these music lessons. Then I was sure it was a riff. But then I found out what it really was, was that where he was coming from and his musical education, to tell his parents at this point that he was joining a rock and roll band would have been like just pouring it down the drain. So he justified it to his uh, people and his background by being a music teacher. There, there is a view that uh, jazz is evil because it comes from evil people, but actually the greatest priest on 52nd Street and on the streets in New York City were the musicians. They were doing the greatest healing work and they knew how to punch through music which would Cure, make people feel good. As Liebman Helm later noted, Garth's remarks on the healing properties of music were actually the most eloquent sequence in the whole film. And Helm certainly has a point. There's also a connection here between Garth's statement and Scorsese, the filmmaker. Scorsese was very involved in the Catholic Church, almost becoming a priest in his preteen years. Religion is a theme that you can spot through his entire filmography, often exploring it in various ways. Hudson also shares a deep connection to religion and religious music. Being involved in the church choir and playing piano in Sunday school as a child left a profound effect on him and his musical influence. It was then without a doubt that Hudson's statement resonated with Scorsese, making it a sure-fire segment in the film. Hudson's words transition into the band's Ophelia. In Michael Henry's writing about Martin Scorsese and Ophelia, he notes that Ophelia is misspelled with an R in the end credits. Henry correlates the story of Eurydice and Orpheus of Greek mythology to the band. The group playing the role of the dead Eurydice and their song Ophelia or perhaps Levon as Orpheus. In Ovid's telling, Orpheus could sing his way into hell where he does bring back Eurydice but only the great musician could sing his way out of hell with Eurydice in tow, as noted. Like the lyrics suggest, the best things do disappear, as Orpheus couldn't bring Eurydice back, instead she disappears forever. Never another chance to bring her back to him. Regardless of the somewhat convoluted connection that may or may not be there, the film moves on next to an interview with Robertson and Helm. Most of the show stuff, though, is uh, like traveling shows, like tent shows. One was uh, Walcott's Rabbit's Foot Minstrels. Uh, what was that? Walcott's Walcott's Rabbit's Foot Minstrels. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they used to... Uh, have the show start right and have the singers and the players and the different uh, parts of the show then the master of ceremonies would come out you know just before the finale and right. explain that 
after the finale, after the kids go home and have the midnight ramble, right? The midnight, the midnight. The midnight ramble. And the songs would get a little bit juicier and uh, the jokes would get a little funnier. And the prettiest dancer would really get down and shake it a few times. A lot of the rock and roll, uh, duck walks and uh, steps and moves came from a lot of that. Everybody did it. And so when, you know, you would see Elvis Presley or Jerry Lee Lewis or Chuck Berry or Bo Diddley really shaking it up, you know, it didn't come out of nowhere. It didn't come out of the air. It was like the local entertainment everybody was going to see. So when they exposed it to the rest of the world, it was like this unknown beast that had come out the grotesque of music that the devil had sent. The interview is interesting on a few levels. Scorsese rather eloquently jumping in for clarification or further questioning is rather unique in the documentary setting, but more so the interview ties together a few pieces of the film. The reference earlier to the pool game, Cutthroat, and Danko's confrontation with life after the band ties in with the healing powers of music from Hudson, and the current segment connects some of the practices in rock performance with the history that is much older than rock itself. As Minturn notes, all of these interview segments somewhat address a world outside of rock in a cynical reading. Cutthroat 2 steps outside of the world of music as performed to offer an underlying ironic commentary on the cold corporate character of the music business and the price it is extracting from the band in order to make the last waltz. And from Levon Helm's words, we leap into Van Morrison's performance of Caravan, a showing that brings full enjoyment. Morrison, in his frumpy, bedazzled suit, prounces across the stage, tying into Helm's statement of the visual, showy components of the minstrel shows. And from Morrison, Scorsese returns to poetry, with a parody reading of The Lord's Prayer from Lawrence Ferlinghetti. Scorsese's placement of Ferlinghetti continues the narration started with Hudson in his remarks about preaching. It can also be connected to Danko's interview on Sip the Wine, for which the prayer echoes the uncertainty of life after the band, with a link to the heavenly kingdom in an indefinite future. But also connected to the following performance of Bob Dylan, as the scene fades to black, Bob appears dressed with a white hat and breaks with his old band into Forever Young. May God bless and keep you always. Wishes all come true. May you always do for others and let others do for you. From Forever Young, the band follows Dylan into Baby Let Me Follow You Down through I Shall Be Released, a proper conclusion to the concert where all guests sing along. The camera slowly zooms out to reveal the gravitas of the stage, and Robertson's voice enters. The road was our school. It gave us a sense of survival. It taught us all we know. There's not much left that we can really take from the road. And we've had our share of... Or maybe it's just superstitious. Superstitious in what way? No, you can press your luck. 
The road has taken a lot of the great ones. Hank Williams, Buddy Holly, Otis Redding, Janice, Jimi Hendrix, Elvis. It's a goddamn impossible way of life. It is, isn't it? No question about it. Really, Robertson again is trying to provide context for this entire film and event, trying to put anyone at ease who questions the motives. The road had gotten to him and he wanted to quit. And while he muses of the great ones like Presley, Hawley, and Redding, some folks didn't take too kindly to the whole idea that Robertson was putting forward. Film critic Colin Westerbeck said, I'd rather had the impression that what killed Elvis Presley was staying home too much, not being on the road. And as flawed as it may be, this is the last set of words we are given in the film. The crossfade from Robertson's face provides us with the last shot of the band, Richard getting the final moment. At the same time, the conclusion arcs the convergence of concert timeline and the timeline of the film for the first time. Neil Minturn summarizes it very well. The intersecting timelines mark the impending return to reality for the musicians who face life after the last waltz. For the concert audience who face getting out and going home, for the film audience who also face getting out and going home, and for the director who, like the musicians, face life after this project. Thank you for listening to The Band of History on our multi-part series on The Last Waltz. It's been a tough one to get through. This episode, especially, I mentioned on Twitter that I was kind of getting stuck in the weeds a little bit in formatting this episode, but I finally broke through and I think I provided a compelling uh, piece of content on the interview segments backed by a lot of great research from other folks and other interpretations and just watching the film a whole lot. But before I go on, I want to talk about the sponsor for this episode, which is BetterHelp. I agreed to talk about BetterHelp because I truly believe if a resource like this was around for folks like the band, uh, a lot less pain and suffering would have occurred. The good news is therapy works. Whatever you need, it's time to stop being ashamed of normal human struggles and start feeling better because you deserve to be happy. And now you don't have to worry about finding an in-person therapist near you to help. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist. So you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can start communicating with your therapist in under 48 hours. And a special offer to the Band of History listeners, you get 10% off your first month of professional therapy at betterhelp.com slash the band. That's better H E L P dot com slash the band. Thanks again to BetterHelp. And on to final housekeepings. Uh, if you want to follow us along online, you can. We're everywhere Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, you name it, we're there uh, at the band podcast. Uh, we provide a lot of additional content there, chats, discussions. Come say hi. Uh, we started posting some blog content. 
I wrote a lot of compelling stuff on our Patreon, which I'll mention later. Um, and I'm bringing some of that out for the public. But I also wrote an article um, called The Fable of Richard Manuel's Greatest Gift about his voice throughout his entire career. And uh, I really appreciate you guys reading that. So you can find that um, at thebandpodcast.com and you'll see the blog tab. But there's other stuff up there as well. Um, and I mentioned Patreon. If you want to consider donating to the show and help pay for all the kind of things that we need for the show, whether it's podcast hosting, etc., you can do so by going to patreon.com slash the band of history. There's different tiers. There's additional bonus content blogs and other different things. You get episode access early as well. So thank you again for listening to the band of history. This was one of the many parts of the last Walt series that we're going to continue. And we'll talk to you soon. of households that start the year with peloton are still active a year later 92 percent because of a bike not just bikes we also make treadmills and rowers oh let me guess for elite athletes only right nope it doesn't matter if you're an avid exerciser or new to working out peloton can help you achieve your fitness goals 92 percent stick with it so can you try peloton bikes tread or row risk-free with a 30-day home trial new members only not available in remote locations see additional terms at onepeloton.com home dash trial at the Home Depot, we're dedicated to helping you build the skills that get your home projects done right. That's why we offer free and interactive online DIY workshops. During the live streams, our knowledgeable associates help you tackle your DIY projects no matter your age or skill level. You can learn how to install new single pole switches as well as standard duplex and GFCI outlets. Register for free at homedepot.com workshops. The Home Depot, how doers get more done. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.